0: Let's dig into to God's Word. If you have your Bible with you, open it up to the very end of the chap of Luke's Gospel, and we're going to look at the last four verses of, of Luke's Gospel. This Thursday is Ascension Thursday. So if you have any Catholic friends at all, which I have a, a number, they know that it's Ascension Thursday. They, they talk about these things. The kids all have off of school for Ascension Thursday, and a lot of us don't really follow uh, liturgical calendar. But I think it's interesting to do that, and I, I there's even websites out there to help not just uh, uh, the Catholic church calendar, but the evangelical church calendar. You know, we, we look at Advent, we look at the Easter season, Palm Sunday, Good Friday. These are all important dates in the church's calendar, and I have never preached about the ascension other than when we've hit it in Scripture. And so today, in recognition that it's Ascension Thursday coming up, I wanted to give thought to the, like, what is the ascension and what is its significance? So if I were to say to you at lunchtime today, the ascension of Jesus Christ, what what difference does that make in your life? What in the world does that have to do with your life? I'll bet you'd bumble your way through your answer. But it's important. It's an, in, it's an important theological concept. So I gave thought to it in my studies this week. And this is how I want to, we're going to read this text, but how it's going to break down. I want to I try to understand what the significance is of the ascension, what its meaning is, what's actually happening. And then I want to consider with more of our time what our reaction should be. What should our reaction to the ascension be? So we're going to look at Luke's gospel because Luke is the the only gospel writer, not to mention the ascension. Other gospel writers mention the ascension. He's the only one, the only one to describe how it happened. And he describes it in two places. He describes it at the the very end of his gospel account that he wrote called Luke. That's an account of Jesus. He he records the ascension at the very end. And then in the other book that he wrote, because Luke was his first book, Acts was his second book. It was a two-part work that he accomplished. He begins with the ascension in the book of Acts. So we're going to look at both of those texts. We're going to focus on uh, the end of Luke. But I want us thinking about this. Why would Luke be the only one to detail Christ's ascension, Christ's departure? I think that just seems like a really, really, important moment in the life of the disciples. But Luke's the only one that gives us details about it for some reason. Why is that? Why is Luke giving us these details? So we're going to try to understand the significance of the ascension, and then we'll look at reactions, what our reactions should be. So let's turn to God's Word. Luke 24, we're going to go verse 50. Through 53, And then we'll uh, jump over to Acts 1 and, and read a little bit of that as well. Hear the word of the Lord. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him, and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and were continually in the temple, blessing God. Now, jump forward, skip over the book of John, and go right to Acts, verse chapter 1. You might be wondering, why is, why is it Ascension Thursday? Well, it's 40 days after the Resurrection, And we know it's 40 days because Luke's the one gospel writer that tells us that. Right in the beginning of Acts, he says in verse 3, He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Then jump down to verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, Behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Man of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw Him go into heaven. Lord, I pray that You would help us to understand the meaning of the ascension that we might react to it appropriately. Stir worship in our hearts. Jesus and His work In his name we pray, amen. So back to Luke. Now, uh, some people have questioned, is Luke talking about the same event? Because he describes it very differently. Yes, he's talking about the same event. There wasn't two ascensions. He's talking about the same event, but he's using different details because he has different purposes. In one, he is bringing a gospel account to a close, In the other book, he's beginning to open up the Acts of the Apostles, the birth of the church, and the implications of that. And the ascension is where he ends one book and where he begins another. But what is the ascension? The word ascension, there's three different words used in the Bible for ascension. Greek words. One literally translates ascending or ascend. To rise. One word that is used oftentimes is a word that's translated journey. So, so, going on a journey. And then there's another word used, a Greek word, that implies or that it would, could be translated going to the Father. Three different words that are used. And uh, the, the idea of ascension is not just tied to Jesus. The word isn't just used to describe something that Jesus did. There are other accounts in the Bible where people ascended, went up, journeyed to God. You can read about them in the Old Testament. Right in the beginning, Genesis 5, we have the story of this man named Enoch who ascended, went up. He was no more. He just went to God. God took him. And then we have the story of one of the prophets, Elijah, God coming to get him in chariots of fire and he rises up. And so... A lot of scholars think that Luke and the Gospel writers are referring to these times. Angels are often coming down and ascending back up into heaven. And Luke is one of the writers who actually spends a lot of time talking about characters that ascend. He has the angel ascending after the angel talks to Mary. He has the angel ascending after the, the, the angel speaks to the shepherds. There are two men, angels at the transfiguration, and they ascend. Christ vanished on the road to Emmaus. He was talking to the disciples and He just vanished. It, this, this is the language of ascension. In the book of Acts, Luke tells us that there's an angel with a man named Cornelius. He speaks to Cornelius and then he ascends. And then... In Acts 12, Peter is in jail with one of the other disciples. An angel comes and unlocks the jail cell for him, rescues them, and then the angel ascends. So the idea of ascending is not just tied to Jesus in Luke's Gospel. Its meaning is to ascend, to journey, to go to the Father. What's the significance though? The ascension, Jesus' departure into heaven represents a number of things. It highlights Jesus' heavenly reign. Jesus, we believe, is alive. And He's reigning and ruling now from heaven. From, seated at the right hand of the Father. So, so Jesus suffered, bled, died, rose again, ascended, and is now seated at the right hand of the Father. It highlights His heavenly reign. It also signals the completion of His earthly ministry. He did what He came to do. He accomplished what He set out to do. God's plan of salvation was accomplished completely in Jesus. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Why? Because of the the birth, life, death. Resurrection, ascension, and glorification of Jesus. It's complete. You can be sure of that. If you're discouraged this morning, remind yourself of the complete work of Jesus Christ on your behalf to save you. It's complete. It's done. And you don't add anything to it but the sins that you've committed. He did it. Jesus paid it all. And he paid it all through his life, through His death, through His resurrection, through His ascension. His ministry here on earth is complete. It's done. Jesus' ascension into heaven marks the outpouring of the Holy Spirit because Jesus told him to go wait in Jerusalem. I'm going I'm to ascend to the Father. You go wait in Jerusalem. Something's going to happen there. And so the disciples went and waited. And what happened was Jesus gave the Holy Spirit to them. Jesus actually said, it will be better for you as disciples if the Holy Spirit comes to you than if I stayed with you. So it marks the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and inaugurates the last days. The ascension vindicates Jesus. Look at something. Look at this. Luke 22. Skip back a couple verses. This is Jesus... On trial. And on trial, Jesus makes a very bold prediction. They are getting ready to kill Him. Jesus is before the council. Luke 22, verse 66. When the day came the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together both chief priests and scribes and they led him away to their council and they said, if you're the Christ, tell us. But He said to them, if I tell you, you won't believe. And if I ask you, you won't answer. But from now on, here's the prediction, but from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. That is a bold claim when people are getting ready to kill you. Jesus predicted that He would ascend. And that when He ascended, His work would be complete. He would be seated in heaven at the right hand of the Father. And I'm sure many people, when they watched Jesus nailed to the cross... When they shouted crucify him, crucify him, they they witnessed his death and then they saw him laid into a tomb and the rock rolled in front of that tomb just like dying like any other criminal or dying like any other person has died. I'm sure there were many that said, remember what he said? He said, if we kill him, he's going to rise again to the Father. Yeah, right. The ascension is the vindication of Jesus. It's the fulfillment of a prediction that he made. It all came to pass just as he said it would, and from now on, he'll reign for all of eternity at the right hand of the Father. Praise him. What's the ascension telling us? The ascension is telling you this. That the distribution of all of God's salvation benefits has begun. The the ascension is telling you, let let the distribution of salvation benefits begin. It's like when Jesus ascended, this is what's happening. He completed the work so that all of God's salvation blessings could now flow. It's like he could open the floodgates now because Jesus accomplished this work of salvation. And now all of those benefits, you know, Paul in Ephesians 1, he says that we've been blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Somebody tell me what that is. That's what you've been given if you're in Christ. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. I can't. I. I don't even know what that means except that it must mean a lot. Except that what that is is something that's going to satisfy us for all of eternity in a way that the things of this world could never, ever, ever satisfy us. He's, and what, what the ascension is telling us is that the moment that he ascended, completing the work on earth that he came to do, that all of those salvation benefits started to gush towards humanity. They're being distributed. Have you received yet? Have you, have you received what salvation benefits are being distributed by God? It's like there's this, is it a Geico commercial? You know, they're, they're, it's. you wonder how I got from Ascension, the Geico commercial. But you know the Geico commercial where, uh, where they, they show these guys that are hard at work doing some kind of mining or quarry work. You know what I'm talking about? And they hit soft-serve ice cream. You know what I'm talking about? You've seen this? So so these guys, they're all like running for the kid, they got wheelbarrows full of cones, and they're trying to, fill up their ice cream cones of soft serve ice cream and near the end of the commercial you see them this big explosion in the back and they hit something else and one of them comes up and says we hit sprinkles you know and it's like the sprinkles are flowing the ice cream's flowing the ascension is All of the ice cream, all of the sprinkles, and all of every good salvation benefit is being distributed. Why? Because Jesus has accomplished God's work of salvation, and the benefits are flowing to all who would receive. I want some. Do you want some? It's real easy to receive it. It's the same way you receive soft-serve ice cream. You just put your hands out. It's all you got to do to receive what Jesus came to give is say, I'd like to have some of that. You would? Here it comes. That's the ascension. Let the distribution of salvation benefits begin. Let the distribution of salvation benefits begin. Let the distribution of salvation benefits begin How? Why? Because Jesus has ascended. That's the ascension. Now, how should we react to it? How should we react? You could probably answer that question without looking at the text. Seems like there's an obvious response, right? Look at the text, though, because it tells us. This is why, we, guys, we have to read our Bibles. Do you want to be a Christian who loves Jesus? Do you want to be a Christian who does the things that Jesus commands? Do you want to be a Christian who is actually filled with joy? Do you want to be a Christian that actually makes a difference? Do you want to be a Christian where the, where the epitaph over your grave says, they lived a joy-filled life and served God's purposes in their generation. Do you want that? Anybody. Does anybody want that? Does anybody want to make a difference in this community? Does anybody want to make a difference in beyond? Does anyone want to bear fruit for the glory of your King Jesus who has risen and ascended on high? You've got to stay in this Word. You've got to stay in this Word because this is where God speaks truth to us. Listen, I'm I'm convinced of this, and and I've debated these things over time, over 20 years, and I, and this is probably why at times why I need a sabbatical, because I'm convinced we could build a building or a church in this community that has more people sitting in it right now than are seated right around you. I'm convinced we could do it. All we need is really good music and a funny sermon. And you know what we'll have? And a lot of churches have it. We'll have a big old crowd. But we might not have what Jesus is really looking for. Because if you speak in a way that gathers crowds... Comedians grab, grab, gather crowds. Motivational speakers can gather crowds. But if that's what you do, and you never really speak God's word, and maybe you just throw a verse up on a screen every once in a while just to make it seem like you're Christian, you won't experience what God wants you to experience, and you won't do what God wants you to do. What you draw people to the church with is what you hold them with. And if you draw them with smoke and mirrors, then you got to hold them with smoke and mirrors. We want real, passionate disciples of Jesus Christ who love Him with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love their neighbors like they love themselves. Because that's what Jesus wants. And how do I know that? Because it says so in His Word. You want to draw close to Jesus? Stay in His Word. You want to understand how you should react to the ascension? Look in His Word. How should we react? Verse 52, here it is. How did the disciples react? He blessed them, and while he was blessing them, like, do you, do you ever take time to imagine that? Jesus is blessing them. I don't even know exactly what that looks like, but he's got hands raised toward heaven, and one hand pointed out towards them, and he's saying some things, and I'm sure they were things that disciples remembered for the rest of their lives, and then while that was happening, he parted from them. So could they still hear his words? And bless him, blah, 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 and Fading off, and he was carried up into heaven. What did they do? They worshipped him, and they returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and were continually in the temple blessing God. There it is. My work is done. Three things: disciples' reaction. First, how should we respond to this? Enthusiastic worship. Enthusiastic worship. How should we respond to the fact that Christ's work is complete and He has ascended on high? How should we respond to the idea of Ascension Thursday? You should worship Christ. But just in case your definition of worship is not what God's definition of worship is, it's enthusiastically. We sometimes think of worship as going through the motions. That's not what is happening here. This this worship that is taking place is enthusiastic. No one had to tell them. This is not some kind of legalistic obedience. You know, hey, I'm leaving. Make sure you worship me. He said to worship. Somebody get the guitar out. Tom Zaitler's not here. Where's Josh? They did it because they saw Jesus ascended and they were starting to put things together. And they realized that their hope was built on nothing less than Jesus Christ and His righteousness that all other ground was sinking sand, and, and they had a solid rock hope. And what, was, what did they do as a result? They praised Him. They worshipped Him. This is the first time that Luke has ever described the disciples worshipping Jesus. First time. He gets to the end of his gospel and the disciples worship Jesus. Now they've worshiped God. This is the first time we see them worshiping him. Why? Why would Luke make that point? Why wait until the ascension and make that point? I want to show you something because this is is amazing. They worshiped him. Because they understood some things about him that they didn't understand before. The disciples were very dull. You read through the Gospels and they don't get it over and over and over. Do you not yet understand? Don't you understand what I'm saying to you? He, Jesus said this to the disciples over and over and over again. But two things have happened prior to his ascension during that 40 days. The first was on the road to Emmaus. That's Luke 24, verse 13. You know the story. Jesus appears to two disciples, and they don't know it's him. And, they, and, and, and what happens is Jesus begins to explain the Scriptures. He even says to them, they, he calls them foolish. He says, you're slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Like, Jesus, take it easy on us. He appears to them, and then Jesus, even though they don't know it's him, Walks them through the scriptures all the way on the road to Emmaus. He walks them through the scriptures showing how Jesus fulfilled the prophets, the Psalms, Moses. He shows how Jesus is a fulfillment of those things. You talk about a Bible study, and their eyes were open. And then it says that He appeared to the disciples. And when He appeared to the disciples, it sounds like He led a big Bible study too, because in verse 42, it says, These are My words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about Me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then He opened their minds to understand the Scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. Repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. The disciples worship him. Why? Because they have this appreciation for Jesus and what he accomplished for them. It's God's kindness, the Scripture says, that leads us to repentance. What are some of your most powerful moments in God? Maybe the ascension was one of the disciples. I don't know. What's yours? What's one of your most powerful moments? A moment where you understood what Christ had done for you. Maybe it's the moment that you experience conversion, where you're saved. Maybe it's another moment. I don't know what your moment is. I have some moments. When I say most powerful moment, they can't be everyday moments, right? They're they're big moments. I think about the disciples. What was Peter's? What was Peter's most biggest moment in Christ? I don't know. I've been looking at the life of Peter, though, and looking at how many angels he saw I mean, this guy saw some incredible things. I wonder if his moment, what if his most powerful moment was when Jesus was explaining these Scriptures and he understood that even though he denied him, that he could be saved. How could he be saved? Because Jesus was helping him to see that even though he had failed, Jesus' work on his behalf had covered over his failures. Can you imagine how Peter felt when Jesus said, listen, you say you're going to go to your death for me, but you're going to deny me three times before the end of the day. And then then Peter actually did it. And when he denied him three times, the Scripture says the rooster crowed, he... The implication is he saw Jesus looking at him. And he broke down. Did Jesus condemn him? Did Jesus punish him? It was his kindness that led him to repentance. They worshipped him because they saw his kindness. Some of you need to know the kindness of God this morning. I'm going to try to tell a story Uh, quickly if I can. If it flops, I won't do it in a second service. Um, So you guys will be my my guinea pigs. But I was, I was, and I, like, this is what you get. I was talking to my oldest daughter about some of this. Like, what you guys get are some of my stories. And there's nothing I can do about that because I'm me, right? But in some ways I feel apologetic because they're my stories. But some of the stories you get is from the books that I read. And I thought of this illustration last night, or earlier this week. I was thinking about a book that I read to my kids. And I thought, this is an illustration of God's kindness leading you to repentance. But I thought, I'll never find it. Did I get that book out of the library? I know what book it is. But how can I find that story? And so I just did. This is a good thing. This is is like something you need to remember. If you have a computer you should just Google whatever is in your mind, not Google, Um, search your hard drive for whatever is in your mind. Because I did that, and I read this book probably like 12 years ago. I did that, and I had made a copy of one chapter, probably illegally, made a chapter, a copy of the chapter of that book and filed it. And so I read the chapter last night, and I was so thankful that God uses our minds that way. But anyway, we'll, we'll try it. I'll try the story, okay? See, see if you guys get into it and whether I'll use it in the second service. The story is about this nine-year-old boy. His nickname is Little Britches. He lives out west with his very poor family, probably turn of the century, and they are ranchers. And this kid works extremely hard. He doesn't know it at the time, but his father's dying of tuberculosis. And he works harder than, I'll say, any of the men and women in this room. This dude was tough at nine years old. And he has a relationship with his father that he describes in this book that is so incredibly powerful. They had nothing. They had nothing. And this kid works so hard, not knowing why his dad's in bed a lot, coughing. So he's picking up the slack. One book is called The Man of the Family. He's like 10 years old and he's a man of the family. So he's working extremely hard, and in one moment, he, his dad and him, he's making money, and he's contributed to the family, and his family knows that he's, the, he's one of the main reasons why they're surviving. He's nine years old, and he all of a sudden gets a craving for a little bit of chocolate, and he knows that his mom has a bar of chocolate that she saves for every Christmas, and she's saving it in one of the cupboards so she can make fudge out of it. But he decides that he really wants some of that chocolate. And then he starts going through this. And you know this, he starts justifying all the reasons why it would be okay for him to take that chocolate. He's been working so hard. They owe him money anyway. So why couldn't he just take a little hunk of chocolate off? So he starts uh, daydreaming about how he's just going to go in and he's going to take a piece of that chocolate and he's going to cut it off. He starts thinking, boy, if I cut it sharp enough, if I get a sharp enough knife, I could cut it off and my mom would never know. But then he starts thinking, if I eat a little bit of it, I I I could hunk off a good bit, eat it, confess it before they find out, and then they probably won't even give me a spanking and I won't even get in trouble and they'll actually appreciate the fact that I confessed that I did something wrong. He's going through all of these, he's hopping through all these things. So one day he decides, I'm going in, he goes in, I'm going to try to shorten the story. He goes in, he cuts off, he's getting ready to cut off a piece of chocolate and his mom walks into the kitchen. So he quick hides chocolate under his shirt. But now he's got the chocolate there. He didn't eat any of it yet. He's just holding it. So then he goes out to the barn and hides the chocolate in a box thinking, I'll go back out there tonight, get the chocolate, and put it back in the house. And then he describes, he's working with his dad the rest of the day, and he's got a guilty conscience. Have you ever had a guilty conscience? He describes it so well. Every time his dad calls his name, he jumps. Every time they're working together, his, dad, he's trying, his dad's trying to solder something, and his hands are shaking because he's so guilty for having stolen the chocolate. And all day long he's thinking, I just got to get back to, to, to that piece of chocolate and put it back into the house, and then I'll be okay because I never took any of it. I just moved it, now I'm moving it back. When he, by the end of the day, though, he goes to get the cows, and he's away from his dad, and he starts reconsidering. You know this too, right? That won't really be. I, I just, like, it's okay if I have one little bit of that chocolate. I'm going to take a little bit. That's what I'm going to do. So then, he, so then his mom reads to him every Sunday night. She's reading um, uh, Hamlet to them, and he's listening to the story, and he's haunted by, I, I won't find it, but what was that phrase, Zane? Do you remember what did he say? There's a line in it where the king says, "Oh, the the pain of a soul that's tortured," you know, or something like that. And he said that line is just playing over and over in his mind. My tortured soul, my tortured soul. I'm gonna end up like that. And then he says he decides, you know what? I'm gonna put it in the Lord's hands. So he finds like a seed pod, like an old milkweed pod, and he says, "I'm gonna throw it up in the air, and if it points east." I'm not gonna. I'm gonna go put the chocolate away. If it points west, I'm just gonna take a little bit of it. And if it points uh, south, I'm eating the whole thing. So he throws it up and he looks at it and he can't decide exactly where it's pointing. And so he's decided, yeah, I'm gonna eat at least a little bit of it. But then he gets tortured. I wonder, was the milkweed pod pointing a little bit more south than I thought? He's tortured. He finally decides. I'm getting up. I'm going to eat some of it. So in the middle of the night, everybody's in bed. He gets up, goes out to the barn, has the knife with him, lays it on the fence post, and is getting ready to cut a piece of the chocolate off. And he hears, Son! His dad caught him in the middle of the night, and he hides it. And his dad, this is the 1900s, gives him a spanking. And then he said, the spanking didn't hurt at all compared to the next thing that my dad said to me. And his dad turned to him and said, You have been working really hard. And you deserve the chocolate. If you'd asked me for it or you asked your mother for it, we would have given it to you. It's your sneaking and your lying. And your deception that bothers me so much. And then he said, you've been earning your money and we've been putting it into the family pool that we would survive together as a family. But I think at this point, it's okay. If you take the money you earn, you keep your money. And I'll take what I earn and I'll put it towards the family. And he broke down in tears. Please, Dad. Please. Please. I want the money to go to the family. I don't want it from me. And he broke down, crying and pleading with his father. What's the point? It was the Father's kindness that led him to a place of great sorrow for what he had done. On his way to bed that night, he asked him if he would be a partner in the business and he shook his hand when they went to bed. And he said he went to bed with his hand hurting in a good way from his dad squeezing it and saying, we're partners now. God's kind... What do you think built love in that boy's heart for his father. Was it, was it the harsh spanking that he received? He said that that didn't hurt compared to knowing that he had somehow severed his trust and his, and his love and knowing that his father so deeply loved him led him to a place of repentance. Isn't it the same for you? When you understand what Jesus did, that Jesus dead and bl- bled and died and suffered in our place, when, when we betray him like Peter did and we see, we can see in faith his, the sorrow in his eyes, it's not so much the consequence that we receive that draws us to him. It's his great love for us. His great love for us draws us to a place of worship. And this is why we must stay in our Bibles because when we're in our Bibles, we see Jesus. And when we see Jesus, we appreciate Jesus. And when we appreciate Jesus, you can't help but worship Jesus. That's one of the ways we react to the ascension. Now we're moving on. Let me get the band to come on back up. And we'll, we'll move through these last two points. It says that they worshipped Him, and they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. Not even joy, great joy. Now what are they doing in returning to Jerusalem? Do you know what they're doing? They are obeying Jesus. Jesus told them to go to Jerusalem. Why? So that they would wait for the Holy Spirit that would come upon them. This is an act of obedience. This is why I say that the second reaction to, to the ascension is joyful obedience. Is your obedience to God joyful? Church, is your obedience to God joyful? Do you experience joy when you obey? You should. We should experience great joy. The ascension, our reaction to the ascension of Jesus' complete work of salvation and all the benefits that are coming to us should result in joyful obedience. Joyful obedience, joy is one of Luke's great themes. He, he talks about it over and over again. And in Luke's definition of joy, it's this. It's a present experience shared to the degree of one's participation in the event. Is it possible to, to think about what Jesus has done and not experience joy? Yes, because you've got to get up in it to experience it. But Jesus wants you. His ascension is proof that he wants to distribute all of salvation's benefits to you. And one of the ways you'll respond to his benefits is you'll obey him not in drudgery, not in legalistic duty, but in a joy filled, a great joy, he says. I remember once I got mad at my family when I was a kid. And we were headed to a party. And I thought I would spite my family by not going into the party. That I, would, that I was going to sulk and draw all the attention to myself. Now, I wasn't as sharp as that, but that's what I was doing. I didn't have like, the clearest motivation. I mean, I knew what my motivations were, but I couldn't have explained them to you. I was 11 years old, 10 years old. But I had gotten into an argument. I was embarrassed over something, and I decided, fine, I'll show you. I'm not going to go into the party. So I s- sat in the car for a while. I sat outside, and I was, m- I was bored to death. And every once in a while, I, would, like, I got out of the car and started walking around, and everybody's laughing in there. Everybody's having a good time. But I'm showing I'm up. And I'm waiting, waiting. Isn't anybody going to come out to see me? Isn't anybody going to come out? And every once in a while, my mom would come out and say, really? Come on in. Everybody's having a good time. No. No, I'm standing for what's right out here. (laughs) And then I would get madder. You ever do this? I'm standing outside. I'm getting madder at everybody. I'm mad at everybody in there. They're laughing and having a good time, but Kenny's not there and I'm just stewing, and then my dad would come out, Ken, come on, get in here. Everybody's having a good time. They're asking about you. It's weird. Come on in. <laughs> no. Santa, standing right here, kicking stones, sulking out in the driveway. I look like an idiot. There was a party being held. Everybody in the party, and everybody that was invited, was in there having a good time. Kenny wasn't. Why wasn't he experiencing joy? It's not that there wasn't a party going on. It's not that there wasn't a family waiting there to celebrate with him. It wasn't that there was a present experience to be enjoyed. The reason why Kenny wasn't enjoying it wasn't because it wasn't happening. It was because he wouldn't participate in it. The joy of Jesus Christ and all that he's accomplished to save sinners is, is, is concluded in the ascension where he begins to distribute all of salvation's benefits. If you come into the party, you will experience joy. But if you stand on the outside soaking, you won't. Who wants some joy? Get into the house where the party's going on and enjoy. And you know what? When you get in there, you'll find that Jesus is patient with people who actually soak outside for an hour that he actually says no 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 you don't you don't have to do penance you don't have to you don't have to do a bunch of things like like we might think okay i'll go over to this house and i'll work this stuff off and then i'll be allowed in the party no i already took care of that you get on in in here and we're experiencing joy how do you experience joy in the Christian life? you got to get up into Jesus. you got to join the party of Jesus. Don't stand on the outside sulking. You with me? All right. What's the last thing they do? They are continually in the temple blessing God. What does this mean? Whatever they're doing, they're doing it continually. They're in the temple blessing God. I was in a conversation with J. Russ, and he helped me to see something. The te- I, I thought that just means worshiping, joyfully obeying God at church regularly. They're in the temple at church. And J. Ross helped me to see uh, something really important here. The temple didn't represent church like it does here back then. The temple was where they were going to be witnesses. They were going to go and tell people about Jesus because there at the temple, Jesus wasn't being worshipped. So they were going to go and teach people everything that Jesus had taught them so the temple became a place of witness. And not just once in a while witness, continual witness. So how do we respond? How do we react? We, we react in worship, enthusiastic. We react with joyful obedience to God and His Word. And we react by living in continual witness for Jesus. And that is the overflow of a disciple's heart. If you're experiencing a great party... Don't you want other people to enjoy it? When good things happen to you, don't you want to tell people? It's been a week of sharing grades at our house because school year's coming to an end. I finished my master's degree class. Amy finished hers. Kids are coming home from college. And around our house, that's competition. So who got the best grades? If someone's silent, we know they're not offering something up. But if someone did well, they always offer it up. So this particular semester, and this is a change in my life, because I had some report cards that I would have hidden from everybody and did hide from people, including my parents. Now I got an A in my class. But in this class, you know, I'm snapshotting a photo of it, like three credits. Like, did you notice A? Did you notice GPA 4.0? Did you notice this? Like, I want you to enter into my joy, maybe a little bit of my praise, but I want people to enter into my joy when I have happy news. Don't you want to share with others what Jesus has done for you? Do that continually. Do that over and over again. Who can you share? Who can you tell? Who can you give a reason for your joy? Do that this week. This is the way we should react to, a, to the ascension of Christ. We should react with enthusiastic worship. We should react with joy-filled obedience. And we should live in continual, as a continual witness to all that Jesus has done. Let's stand and let's worship Jesus for the fact that He has ascended and completed our salvation. Amen.